0: Coming up on episode 93 of the Rami LaVie podcast, more insights from the week that was week one in the NFL, a preview of Thursday night football. We also recap Russell Wilson's return to Seattle. Some interesting stuff happened in that game, I would say. Aaron Judge is on a mission. I talked about that a little bit in the open, and we ranked all 32 NFL teams in this episode. So a lot to cover, a long episode. I hope you enjoy it. All that and more next. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. I often talk on this podcast about breaking the stigma surrounding mental health. So if you're feeling stressed, depressed, or just want to talk, today's sponsor, BetterHelp, is here to help you. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed, experienced therapist online, and you have access to over 20,000 different therapists that you may not have access to in your area. All you have to do is fill out a questionnaire, and 48 hours later, you're set up with a therapist that fits your needs. You can then schedule video or phone calls and have access to unlimited messages back and forth with your experience experienced therapist. You can also change to a new therapist at any time with no extra charge. I often talk on this podcast about how perspective is anything, and that's something I learned in therapy. I had terrible anxiety, and I learned about how changing your perspective can change the reality. So take charge of your mental health and join the over 2 million people who already use BetterHelp for therapy online today. And if you use my code, you can get an extra 10% off on your first month. So go to betterhelp.com slash Rami for 10% off. That's B-E-T-T-E-R- Help, H-E-L-P dot com slash Rami for 10% off your first month. Do it today. Start spreading the news. All right. uh, We survive. The Yankees close it out. I was just watching that game as it goes to the 10th inning and Wandy Peralta closes it out. I was shocked to see Jarius Familia on the Red Sox and coming in in that huge spot. But the Yankees take care of business. They get the win. I was not expecting to talk about baseball at all because going into this game, it felt like the least exciting a Yankee Red Sox game has been since... I don't know, 2017, but that's what happens. Red Sox are 16 games out. They're in dead last place in the division. The Yankees give themselves a little separation and uh, let the Blue Jays and Tampa Bay beat each other up as they are in the series now so that the Yankees maintain their lead in the American League East. Football's back. We already had week one. Crazy game last night. Thursday night football tomorrow night. All that good stuff. So you're like, this game has no buzz. And then you remember that Aaron Judge is out there and Garrett Cole can't pitch in Fenway. All that contributes to quite an entertaining game. Anyway, welcome to the Rami Levy podcast. Again, this is episode 93. My name is Rami Levy. If you haven't figured that out by now, if you like this podcast, please like, subscribe, rate, review, do all that good stuff, share it with a friend. I really appreciate it. And the podcast is brought to you by the great folks over at BetterHelp uh, for online therapy and 10% off it, or off your first month, It is Use my name, Rami, R-A-M-I, when you check out and uh, get 10% off your first month of online therapy. So, what happened in this Yankee game? Uh, Well, first of all, I think the biggest story is Aaron Judge. I was going to come on here and talk about Garrett Cole and how upsetting he is. He can't pitch in Fenway. Blah, blah, blah. And all that's true. I mean, it is frustrating. It's infuriating uh, that he can't pitch there. It seems like every time there's a big game, he doesn't come through. His ERA, I think, is in the 8s at Fenway Park right now. And the Yankee fans who just refuse to like give like give it up like okay he's not good like admitted already i don't understand why yankee fans continue it to just like love this guy and and suck up to this guy i don't understand he's not the guy you want in the big situation yes his numbers overall on the season are good i get it but this is not the guy and i was looking back at pictures and videos from him in houston when he had that crazy stretch where he had like 250 strikeouts in 20 starts and he had the era under one or whatever it was and he's got the hat tucked all the way down the cap with the brim tucked all the way down he has this fierce competitive look on his face his face looks chiseled by the way he's gained a lot of weight uh since then his face looks absolutely chiseled he's got the beard and the hair going which contributes to all of it and he just looks like a fierce competitor he's staring down hitters and now he looks like every time he throws a pitch that just misses by a bit he totally loses his emotions i was uh, actually watching the game because mlb network um or MLB TV that is shows the uh, the Red Sox broadcast before they show the Yankee broadcast they're willing to show the Red Sox pregame show so I was watching the game on Nessen, and they're like this is one of the best pitch- pitchers in the league but if you get him a little bit out of his rhythm then all of a sudden he falls apart mentally and that is 100% true and the Red Sox broadcast is noticing it I'm sure the rest of the league is noticing it and I've been saying this all year and this guy can't deal with adversity at all that's not even the story though because I thought that would be the story but it's not the story is Aaron Judge he hits two more home runs, and it's ridiculous. What Aaron Judge has done over the last month is more impressive than anything I've seen. Now, the cumulative stretch over the season of how he's just every single time he's gotten a mistake, he's, he's hit it, right? His entire season, he has 57 home runs. He's been 310 on the season. He's got 125 RBIs all that stuff, 115 runs scored, his OPS is 1,100, all that stuff is insane. But then you come into the last month of the season where it was basically decided the Yankee offense is struggling and the entirety of the offense is Aaron Judge. And so the one thing you don't do is you don't pitch to Aaron Judge. And so if there's any runners on base, he's getting pitched around. He's getting walked automatically. Even when there's nobody on base and nobody out leading off an inning, which is why he's batting leadoff now because you want him up as many times as possible. And it's almost like you don't want him up with runners on scoring position because they'll just walk him every time. If there's a runner on second base, they'll just put Judge on first. So you want him leading off the game so he has more opportunities to bat. That's kind of the idea. I like him leading off. So he's leading off now. By the way, the stolen base is too. do <laughs> Don't forget about that. But he's leading off now. And anytime there's anyone on base, and this has been happening the last month, it's just four fingers automatically walk him. And when there's nobody on base, he's not even seeing any fastballs anymore. Slider down and away, slider down and away, slider down and away. They're just... If he walks, he walks. We'll, we'll let him walk. We're not letting this guy beat us. And yet the few mistakes he's gotten, which are so few and far between, he's hit every single one of them out of the ballpark. It's not like he's hitting home runs because he's getting a ton of pitches to hit. He's getting zero pitches to hit. But when he sees a mistake, it's not that he just hits it. He hits a home run on it. And the fact that he's still hitting for a higher average and the fact that over the last month he's getting zero pitches to hit instead of chasing instead of expanding instead of chasing the record and being like oh i need to get hits and pressing and and putting pressure on himself his average has gone up by like 20 points when he hasn't seen a pitch to hit so it's you'd expect his average to go down as he's walking a ton but you know he'd still expand the zone a little bit kind of get impatient because they're not pitching to him at all and yet instead his average has gone up by like 20 points While he's not seeing any pitches to hit, because every single time, if there's a pitch, if it's just a little bit up, he'll like he did in his second half-bat, I think it was, he'll just loop it over the second baseman for a single. And if there's a pitch that's a mistake, like the hanging slider he saw on his 57th home run of the season, or the fastball up and in, where he just rockets it the other way, those two pitches, if he ever sees a mistake... He hits it. And I've never seen an athlete as locked in and as dominant as Aaron Judge right now. And I know Barry Bonds in the early 2000s. I didn't see it. I understand that. But I've said this for the last few months. But it's gotten crazier and crazier. Aaron Judge, the level that he's locked in right now is unreal. It's something we've never seen. Or at least I've never seen. The assumption is Aaron Judge is not using steroids the way Barry Bonds was. And with 20 games remaining, he's got 57 homers, the 310 average. The on-base percentage over 4, the 1,100 OPS, the 123 RBIs, 16 solo bases, on base and 115 runs. 20 games left. And assuming he's not on juice. And by the way, I mentioned I was watching the Red Sox broadcast. And they mentioned like, oh, just an incredible season by the Yankee center fielder. That's another piece to it. He's playing center field as a guy playing the toughest position. I know it's not Shohei Otani. He's not pitching. But he's playing this, maybe the toughest position outside of pitcher and not catcher, I guess. And this guy, he's, he's been so good in center field, he's been so good in the field that he's just like, yeah, he's a center fielder, of course. It's been an unreal season. But of course, Marwin Gonzalez has to come to the plate. And of course, he, like the, I just wanted him to not swing in the 10th inning. Runners first on second, nobody out. There was no positive outcome that could have happened from him swinging. If he just strikes out, Aaron Judge comes up next. With a chance to hit, but instead he hits into the double play, of course. Swings at a pitch out of the zone on 2-2. Hits into the double play, and then Judge comes up. They automatically walk him. A great at-bat by Stan after him to walk, load the bases, and then Gleyber Torres unloaded the bases, and they needed all those runs because uh, in the bottom of the 10th, it was wild. Uh, in the bottom of the 10th, Clay Holmes hits a batter, and then a couple of runs score on a wild pitch. But Wandy Peralta, he threw fastball sinkers, changeup, fastball sinker, changeup to Devers. And I was just like, throw a slider down and away. Just throw a slider down and away. He did it. He didn't get it all the way down, but Devers was way out in front and it was away. He was reaching for it. And that ended the ball game uh, for the Yankees. They get the win over Boston. So good win for the Yankees, like I said, with Toronto and Tampa splitting today. That helps them in the standings. Um, The Yankees get their... 86th win of the season they're 86 and 56 so they're back 30 games over 500 with all the ups and downs it's kind of crazy uh and they are up six in the loss column from both toronto and tampa bay which is uh, a great thing to see so that's uh that's yankee talk that's baseball talk i did about oh five minutes on the yankees maybe a little bit more but um uh, that's that's the required yankee talk and now we got a lot more to get to i have a feeling this might be a long episode I hate to say this about the NFL as we move a couple of days removed. It's now Tuesday night, like I mentioned. It's late Tuesday night, 11 p.m. If you're listening to this, it's Wednesday for you, Wednesday morning. Hope you're enjoying your hump day. Tomorrow, it's football again. We get to do it all over again, Thursday night football. Can't wait. And we get to hear Al Michaels for the first time this year, so that's going to be fun. Um, I hate to say every week in the NFL because I think I wrote this on the podcast description on the last episode. Um, I think I probably said it in the show open. I probably said it. Throughout the episode, but I hate to say it all the time. It's a wild Sunday, wild week in the NFL. It seems like it's always a wild week. It's always a wild Sunday in the NFL. So why should I say it every time? But I feel like this week was truly wild. It was really weird between the game we saw on Monday night, and we'll get into it, the game we saw on Sunday night with Brady coming back, all the missed kicks on Sunday afternoon. Thursday night football was awesome. I feel like there were so many crazy things. It might have actually been as wild of a week one as we've had. Even though I said week ones are always weird, always wonky. uh, This might have been actually as wild of a week one as we've seen. And I don't want to start the podcast. Like, If you listen to any sports talk radio show over the last day and a half, really on Tuesday, if you listen to any podcast that came out since Tuesday, and probably most Wednesday morning podcasts who don't record, which, by the way, I love doing the Sunday night podcast. I hope to keep doing it. it was, I was exhausted afterwards. By the time I was done editing it, I was falling asleep on Sunday night. But I love to have a podcast out Monday morning. It's awesome to have the instant reaction. And then as I listen back to it, this episode basically wrote itself what you're about to hear because all the different, as you get 24 and 48 hours away from these games, you kind of look at them a little bit differently. But I love to have that instant reaction episode so then you know, that creates the next episode where then you can comment on the, on the previous episode. It's a little uh, inside baseball there for why the format is so perfect uh, for a Monday, Wednesday, Friday podcast. Um, but I think everyone who is doing a podcast or everyone who has a radio show or a sports show, talk show, whatever it is, is going to be talking about the decision made at the end of the Denver Broncos-Seattle game to kick that field goal, to let the 30 seconds run down. I'm not going to talk about that. At least I'm not going to open with it. Because I don't want to be like everyone else. I want to be different. But uh, also because there's a lot more to get to. And we didn't wrap a bow on Sunday Night Football because, obviously, I recorded as the game was ending. But I'm going to wrap a bow on that, and that's what I'm going to start with. And it starts with Dak Prescott. He's going to be out six to eight weeks. And that's the first thing that comes out the news. He breaks his thumb, and then they don't put him on IR because Jerry Jones is being optimistic. But then again, Jerry Jones is a crazy old man. So are they going to rush him back or they're not going to rush him back? The question is, what's next for Dallas? And the assumption is that McCarthy's just gone. Sean Payton will be the head coach by next year. Uh, that's what's assumed. McCarthy, it was a failed experiment in Dallas. He doesn't seem to be the guy. Jerry Jones is like way too loyal towards his head coaches. We know that already with the Jason Garrett story, but you've got to assume that McCarthy's gone. And what happens the rest of this year, though? Even when Dak Prescott comes back, at that point, are they 0 6? Are they 0 7? Are they one and six, one and eight? Like, what does their record look like when Dak Prescott comes back? And you have all this money tied up in Dak Prescott. Is there a way they can trade him? Are they supposed to be tanking trying to get Bryce Young, the quarterback out of Alabama? Like, what are they supposed to do at this point? To say that Dak Prescott is that good, I know everyone loves Dak Prescott, but Dak Prescott is essentially Kirk Cousins, only he's making $43 million a year. He's not as good as people think, and I think that Sunday night game kind of proved it. He was really bad even when he was in the game on Sunday, and it seems like the team as a whole is really bad. Micah Parsons is the best player on this team by far. Outside of that, there wasn't anything that really impressed me. I thought early on they kind of had an interesting idea to play both of the two running backs at once, but they got away from that very quickly. Dak Prescott looks good when he runs, but every time he runs, I'm terrified. He he gets tackled in the weirdest ways. He looks like he's going to crumple and get hurt every time he gets tackled. And then he gets hurt on his throwing hand in just a weird fluke play where he gets hit in the thumb and requires surgery. So you're really leaning on Dak Prescott to be the guy now going forward. After he comes back from this injury, it's another lost season. Is there any way they could trade him to a desperate team at the end of this year? Maybe even my Jets. We'll see what happens with their quarterback situation. If there's a team that the roster looks pretty good and the quarterback is the only question mark, maybe that's where he ends up. I don't know what they do. I think they're going to stick with Cooper Rush. I don't think they're going to be bringing in a quarterback. How could you bring in a quarterback with you when you have all this money tied up in Dak? Like they're not trading him today or tomorrow. So how could you bring in a quarterback if you have all this money tied up in Dak? So for the rest of those next six to eight weeks, like we said, it's going to be Cooper Rush and that's not going to win you many very many games also i meant to say this uh and this is really my only other takeaway from the box other than they looked pretty good like dallas's defense like i said better than we thought micah parsons making plays out all over the place but chris godwin was back i know he left the middle of the game with the uh hamstring injury but i'm shocked that he was even out there like in fantasy drafts he's going like se- sixth, seventh, seventh eighth round like assuming he was going to miss the first few weeks of the season would he get hurt he tore his acl week 11 last year and he's already back and kind of looked like himself for the few snaps he was on the field so that was uh kind of shocking to me To monday night football and we have to get to it and i want to start from the beginning because i meant to mention this on sunday night but i had a major dilemma going into monday night football uh and it was whether i should watch the manning cast which i'd come accustomed to watching last year especially because i hated the monday broadcast and the broadcast booth or do i watch the broadcasters this year troy aikman joe buck i love those guys i've talked about that all the time and anyway you're going to see all the highlights from the manning cast on twitter so why watch it so i was kind of thinking about it i didn't see all the highlights that i wanted to see obviously everyone saw the end of the game and the reaction to that there were a couple of clips that came out but i also usually my brain works a little bit differently where i'm more amused by certain things that other people are not amused by uh, and that's why I think I would enjoy certain aspects that won't get posted on Twitter and Instagram. So I was afraid I was going to miss those. And honestly, like I said, I only did see like two, three clips from the whole Manning cast. i <laughs> there was some interesting stuff in there that I didn't see. But we talk about the broadcasters so much, I feel like, especially me, because this is something that I love broadcasting as a whole. And the number, the money we've seen thrown out at guy, thrown out at guys like Tony Romo. Now what Amazon Prime is paying for Al Michaels, And obviously, what ESPN is now paying for Troy Aikman and Joe Buck. And the question is, do they move the needle so much? The fact that you have two all-star broadcasters and you're ESPN, you're pitting your two broadcasts against each other. But do you think there's someone out there who's like, eh, Russell Wilson returning to Seattle, Monday Night Football, Denver and Seattle, eh, I don't really want to watch it. Oh, Joe Buck and Troy Aikman are doing the game? I'm definitely going to watch it. Like, I don't know how many people are saying that to themselves. Now, sometimes I've watched the games on mute when i don't like the broadcaster but i'm not gonna not watch because of the broadcaster and i'm probably yes i'm a rare person who probably watches some games because of who's broadcasting but you're the nfl you're football like i think with monday night football it's different where people are watching monday night football anyway even if they have to mute the game you could put me on there i think people will still watch and the number if you look at it there were 19 million viewers overall i think 19 and a half million viewers something like that for monday night football sunday night was 25 and a half but then you have to consider it's tom brady it's sunday night it's also the dallas cowboys but it's just a crazy number 25 million there were 19 and a half million which is a huge number bigger than any number monday night football did at any point last year so yes it's a huge number monday night football audience uh was 19 and a half million but only 1.5 of those 19 and a half million were watching the manning cast so that tells you that most people are watching the traditional broadcast. And I don't know what the number was last year, where how many people were watching uh, the Monday night broadcast versus the Camp broadcast or Manningcast broadcast uh, because Joe Buck and Troy Aikman. So maybe that's where that changes a little bit. I'm not sure, but um, just an interesting thought and something I want to talk about on Sunday. So that was the first thing, by the way. Um, and this was I mentioned this as a selling point. The, probably the biggest selling point of this game was Russell Wilson returning. And I'm sick of the athletes returning. I'm sick of that narrative. With how many times we see athletes move around in the modern era of sports, it's never going to be the same, whether you're a superstar in the NBA, whether you're a quarterback in football. We're going to see more and more players moving teams and changing teams pretty often in their careers. And even if they're in their prime or they're the best player on the team or maybe the best player in the world like Tom Brady, there's still a good chance they're going to be bouncing around. So to do the whole song and dance every time of, oh, he's returning back, he's going back home. Like Russell Wilson, I think, was not even ever as loved in Seattle as Marshawn Lynch or the Legion of Boom amongst those Super Bowl winning teams. And yeah, he was there a while. But like, come on, he's not Tom Brady. Like, I'm sure there are some people. Yes, Tom Brady returning back to Boston after six freaking Super Bowls and a bunch of MVPs in 20 seasons. Yeah, that makes sense. If Aaron Rodgers went somewhere else and he was going back to Green Bay, that makes sense, maybe a little less sense. For Russell Wilson, it feels like, yeah, okay. He's been there, what, 10 years? And he's going to Denver, and it's not like he left and was gone a while. He was, this is his first game ever in Denver, or as a Denver Bronco, and it's back in Seattle. So did he ever really leave? So That whole thing is just weird to me. Um, I don't know why, but I'm kind of over the whole thing. Also with Russell Wilson, um, he's so phony, I can't handle it anymore. With... The fake warming up and the the fake videos that he's, he knows where the cameras are at all time. None of it's, all of it's planned. Like with him warming up last year where he's running through plays as if he's in the hurry up offense with no one around him with the headphones on. Like it's all so fake and phony and all planned. The fake high fives. There was the video that came out of him as he's running out of the tunnel, fake high fiving his non-teammates that weren't there. His pregame outfits that he wears, especially the one that he wore with his suit the little spin around as the cameras all ran up to him and he does this little spin. I don't know what he was doing. Just closes his eyes and puts his arms out and spins. Like, what was that? Like, what's he doing? I can't handle that. Like fake to me is the worst thing is someone who's ingenuine and I'm done. That's why I'm out. Sorry. The athletic article that came out this morning where he was searching for a reporter after the game to tell his story to where after the game, he was pushing a product. That's what happened after the game. The first thing they lose is he's back in Seattle and he was searching for a reporter so he could tell a story about a product that he was pushing that he was promoting like it's just so weird i can't handle fake i can't handle phony like one thing tom brady to me is not fake like he actually cares he really loves the winning i think the one thing where he runs all the way across the field and does that like arm thing and now he does that every game i feel like he used to not do that every single game so maybe that's a little bit fake but that's like one thing that's like lebron throwing up the dust before the game it became like his thing but russell wilson just The constant always being so aware of where the cameras are and always having to say, like, not even the right thing, just say something that makes headlines. And and it's just, it's all fake. It's all BS. I think uh, somebody came up with this a while ago where he's going to compliment three things every time in a press conference. He's going to, every answer is the same where he compliments three things, something like that. It's just, I, I don't do phony and I'm done. I'm done with Russell Westbrook. Sorry, Russell Wilson. I apologize. Sorry. My bad also with russell wilson and this is something that's interesting we talk about how his career in seattle might have been we're gonna see because he might have been overrated in seattle yes he can run around but we said he started to make some more business decisions he's great at getting away from the pressure that has always been great scrambling around in the pocket but in this game he finally has two wide receivers who are real difference makers and when he passed it to them they made incredible plays with judy and sutton And yet, he's mostly passing to his running backs and tight ends. And that's what he's always done. But maybe that's who he is as a quarterback. He stays in the middle of the field. He stays with the dump-offs. Lots of dump-offs to the running backs in this game. Lots of short throws in the middle of the field to the tight ends. I mean, I think we know that Russell Wilson's a more talented quarterback than that. But I can't be a thousand percent sure. And this was definitely a weird game where he didn't prove it. Now, the Seattle crowd was awesome. Like, I was kind of shocked. This team is a team that's supposed to be terrible this year. This roster is supposed to stink. You have freaking Geno Smith as your starting quarterback, who we'll get to in a minute. And the crowd was so into it from the word go. From a second Russ ran onto the field and they started booing him, how loud they were on third downs, the number of false starts, and the number of times that Seattle, or Denver rather, had to call timeout, the number of times that Russell Wilson at the line... took a a delay a game penalty or was about to. The confusion that it seemed was there the entire game for Denver and Russell Wilson's offense. That Seattle crowd has a lot of credit and a lot to do with Seattle winning that game. And the Geno chants are awesome. It's just totally mocking Russell Wilson. And by the way, for people saying, why are you booing Russell Wilson? That guy, how should you boo him? This guy won you a Super Bowl. He took you to another. The guy asked to leave. Whether he did it in public or he did it behind closed doors, Russell Wilson asked out of Seattle. He did not want to be a Seahawk anymore. And whether it was because they weren't willing to give him the huge contract that he got from Denver or not, doesn't matter. If you're a fan base and a guy says, I don't want to be here anymore, then you hate him. That's it. Then you boo him. It's not that difficult to figure out. It's not that hard. Geno Smith, though, back to him. I mean, some of those plays, I'd take him over Joe Flacco. At least he's running. Like, that first touchdown where he stepped up in the pocket and threw the touchdown, he's running around. The first half of Geno Smith, the numbers were amazing. And I saw funny tweets like, oh, can you imagine the diss to Russell Wilson that they're letting Geno cook, quote-unquote? Because the whole thing was, well, they're not letting Russ cook. They're making him hand it off. The, the offense isn't suited for him to put up a lot of points. The offense, they're trying to hand it off a ton. They're just calling these dump offs and screen passes when in reality he was doing that still in Denver's offense and Geno Smith was airing it out downfield. That was awesome. Now, obviously, in the second half, Geno Smith sucked. So if you want to come out and say, oh, Geno Smith is so good, no, at the end of the day, Geno Smith was not that good. His number is in the second half, he threw for 47 total yards and they didn't score a point in the second half. So, yeah, maybe he's better than Flacco, but he's really not that good. And the fact that they won that game was really Denver gifted it to them. I mean, if you think about it, Seattle has two opportunities that they had where they get near turnovers, right? Seattle gets the dropped interception in the red zone, which Jamal Adams drops it, and then digs in the end zone. By the way, Jamal Adams, LOL. I'm not going to laugh at him too much because he got hurt, but (laughs) trying to catch an interception... And it goes right between his hands and hits him in the helmet. Just classic Jamal Adams. Um, And then Diggs in the end zone also drops an interception. And both of those led to field goals for Denver. So Denver almost had six more points than they even should have had. They got lucky that those turned into field goals and not touchdowns. And then Denver turns it over twice by fumbling in the red zone two other times. And instead, Seattle just takes penalties and can't capitalize. So Seattle's not taking advantage of their opportunities. They're not capitalizing at the end of the game. They're giving a 1,000 chances over and over again to the Denver offense. Whether it's not taking advantage of the fumbles, where Geno Smith had a couple drives there where he could have just ended the game with a couple first downs. Whether it's not actually making the interceptions when they're thrown right to your hands in the red zone, and those ultimately led to six points. Seattle did not play a great game. Seattle's not a particularly good team. It looked like Seattle had a great game because they beat Denver and they beat Russell Wilson and all that. And Geno Smith was great in the first half. But Seattle did not play that great. Don't be fooled. Seattle's not that great a team. Now, let's talk about the end of the game. First of all, Seattle terribly mismanaged their timeouts. If you look at the play where they challenged it, that it was called a first down and they challenge it, it looked like the spot was almost in Seattle's favor. It looked like he got the first down by far on tape. And just the measurement was weird that there was definitely space between the end of the football and the beginning of the and the end of the chains. Like it shouldn't have been called a first down, but not because of the spot. And then you challenge the spot. The spot of course was good. So that didn't make sense to me at all, that you would challenge the spot when the spot was actually in favor of Seattle. Only the chains was the difference and the chains being further than the football, which was weird. And they still gave him the first down, but he definitely got the first down. So that's the first time out, just a wasted time out on that. Like somebody should have told P. Carroll, hey, don't challenge this because if you challenge it, we'll definitely lose. Like if they just look, talk this over and say, maybe just say, hey, there's kind of looks like there's a little bit of space there, but challenging it doesn't make sense. You can't challenge the chains. You can only challenge where the spot of the ball was. And the spot of the ball almost looked to be favoring Seattle. So that was the first thing. Then they get an injury. Which also, so that's a second mismanagement of a timeout. And then they decide to ice the kicker on a 64-yard attempt, which would have been the second longest field goal in, in football history, right? Why are you trying to ice the kicker? Like, it didn't make sense that you were trying to ice him when maybe you get lucky and get a few seconds back at the end of the game and you could actually try and score the touchdown or at least have a few seconds with one timeout to try and kick a field goal to then retake the lead if that field goal was good. So that was really, really weird clock management by Pete Carroll, he got saved, I think, in the end of this game. And then the play we're all talking about. And I, I could be cliche, but I got to say, it: you traded for Russell Wilson. You gave him that huge contract. You did all that so that in situations like that, you go for it on fourth and five. I think I saw even if you have Joe Flacco, you go for it on fourth and five. There was a 45% chance of converting of converting a fourth and five, whereas there was a 6% chance. Of making a 64-yard field goal. Those are the stats. Everything tells you to go for it. And if you go for it on fourth and five with still like 50 seconds left, you call timeout there. You had all three timeouts. You call timeout with 50 seconds left. You come up with your best play and you let Russ cook. You maybe get him out of the pocket on a bootleg and you have a triple option where he could throw it. He could run it. He could dump it off to someone else. You make something happen. You get five yards. That's why you trade for a quarterback like Russell Wilson to get you five yards. But instead, you think this guy's Justin Tucker. He's not Justin Tucker. And you put him out there to kick what would have been the second longest field goal in NFL history after you run down the clock by 30 seconds to 20 seconds. Just none of it made sense. It's, it's a typical rookie head coach in his first job overthinking it, in my opinion. Because he's like, wait, how could I be so smart? I'm going to confuse the defense here. I'm going to call a timeout. I'm going to run the clock down, call a timeout, and then rush my kicking unit onto the field. And you didn't fool anyone. It's like overthinking it. It's the same almost as Seattle deciding to throw for it in their, in the red zone or at the two-yard line, whatever it was back in the Super Bowl, where it's like the play is so easy. The right move is so easy that you end up overthinking it. And that's what ruined it for them. And so they kick the field goal. And we all know what happens. <laughs> and then out of pettiness almost, which was just weird, he calls his two final timeouts as the Seattle Seahawks are taking their knees to win the game. Like that was weird too. A weird thing that happened also was uh, McManus, the kicker did take to Twitter afterwards and said, Hey, I knew that that was my range. I should have made that kick. Okay. I guess it's a new age where the players can react immediately on Twitter after the games. So that's cool. I guess. But it's kind of interesting to me that he did go to Twitter after the game was like, Hey, should have made the kick. It's better than a post game press conference. Kind of more organic. The best player in the game for Seattle, by the way, because I talked they weren't that great, was a guy named Michael Jackson. Yeah, he was the best player. He had two fumble recoveries. He was all over the place on the field. That was cool. Never heard of him before. And the best player on the field for Denver was Javante Williams. And yet he barely got any touches. Like, why aren't you giving more touches to Javante Williams? So overall, just a weird, weird uh, football game. My father called it Gino bounce back season. It's the first time in eight years that he's started in a week one. So I guess he's bouncing back from his season that he had eight years ago. And a real comeback for Geno Smith, who was awful down the stretch, but Russell Wilson was worse. And why sports gambling is awesome, because in this week's sports gambling, I had two missed ex- or two missed field goals that got me my wins. Obviously, I had the Giants parlayed with the under, and that missed kick in Tennessee ultimately got me that win of the bet. And this week, I had Seattle money line. And because of the missed kick and really the missed managed clock or mismanaged situation on fourth down by the Denver Broncos, got me Seattle money line. And all that means is I went 3 0 in fantasy. I won three big bets this week. It means I'm going to gamble hella irresponsibly this week and have a really fun time, probably lose a lot of money. But uh, that's for another time. And that really puts a bow on a really, what was a really strange, strange game. Um, So I wanted to talk about a couple things. Obviously, I'm a Jets fan, so I do want to get back. The Jets made some more headlines this week, none of them positive, shocking. Uh, But if you think about the quarterback situation, because Robert Sala did not commit fully to Joe Flacco being his starter in week two against the Browns. And I could, I understand that. With Miles Garrett and Javion Clowney chasing him around, and the way he looked like a statue in the game against the Ravens, I'd understand why you'd, Don't want to commit to Joe Flacco, but I don't think Mike White is going to be much more of a mobile quarterback, and he was awful in preseason. Does that leave Chris Stravler, The guy who they re-signed to their practice squad, who had an awesome training camp and an awesome preseason? Like, he might be the best option right now. He's basically Taysom Hill. He plays Gunner, or I think that's what it is, right? The Gunner on special teams? He could play a little tight end for you. He's basically Taysom Hill. But he might be the best option for him to run on the field, have a little magic, maybe dump off the pass. Like dump off some passes to Garrett Wilson, see what he could do in the open field. Brees Hall, Michael Carter. Like I think this offense actually has a chance to be extremely dynamic. And obviously we'll see when Zach Wilson comes back. But Lafleur needs to be extremely creative. He needs to be more creative than he's been. And I think with the weapons you have, I talked about the Denver or sorry, the Cowboys offense where they ran a lot of two running back sets with Zeke and Pollard at the beginning of the game. If you flank Zach Wilson with Brees Hall and Michael Carter to either side of him and you're using Berrios, who's quick and you could use him in the in the slot, and he's running around running pre-snap. And he used the big tight ends. And he used Garrett Wilson and you use Elijah Moore. You don't even have to use a guy like Corey Davis. You run all that trickery. You make it as easy as possible for Zach Wilson and you also In doing that, help the offensive line. If there's a lot of pre-snap trickery, there's a lot of stuff going on in the backfield. If you're running bootlegs, if you're running options with the two running backs, if you're running options where it's just quick passes to these tight ends and these wide receivers who are really quick and these running backs who are really quick and can make something happen in the short intermediate game and then you could still take your shots downfield and it just opens up the whole game, get Zach Wilson moving out of the pocket, give him more time. He's best at throwing on the run anyway. There's a real potential for this offense to be awesome this year. And I hope we see it. Maybe we didn't see it just because Joe Flacco was in there. But I hope we get a chance to see it once he comes back. And I hope Mike LaFleur, the offensive coordinator, is more creative than he's been. Because there's some really big potential. Like I said, Garrett Wilson, what he was able to do after the catch. And the moves he can make. Obviously Elijah Moore, you put him in the slot also. Braxton Berrios had some really nice moves. And like I said, Carter... And Brees Hall look like they could be really good. You throw in a little bit of the tight ends. Mix that in once in a while. They could do some really special stuff with this offense. And it could help the offensive line. It could help everything that's going on on this team. There's a lot of potential here. I hope they see that potential. But that's the problem. All we see is potential. And Robert Sala in his press conference saying, Well, it's right there. And once we turn it around, I'm taking receipts, blah, blah, blah. You're 4-14, four and 14, Robert Sala. You're taking receipts like we're scared of you. Oh, you're going to turn it around and win. You're not going to be here. And this is the problem that happens. Happened with Julius Randle. Happened with Joe Judge last year. Guess what? Once a player slash coach slash anyone in New York sports turns on the fans and turns on the media, that's their first step out the door. And in just his first game of his second season as head coach of the New York Jets, it seems like Robert Sala is already one foot out the door. And that's the problem. I told you that this was going to come back on Salah, and now if they win, all is forgotten, all is forgiven. And he better not bring it up again if they win. But for him to be going after the fans, saying everyone's so negative, everyone wants instant success, no, we don't want instant success. You're 4-14. Four and 14. How is that instant? If you started winning now, that still wouldn't have been instant. If you win eight games this year, it wouldn't be instant, because that's not real winning. Eight games is a losing season still. You have to win nine games for it to even be a winning season. And for you to come out here like you're some poor guy who's being hated on for no good reason. is just pathetic. And when you start doing that, that's your first step out the door. And I'm sorry to say it because I thought Robert Sala was the guy. He was a tough guy. Energy, defense, all that stuff. And the defense, you have the weapons now. They look great. The numbers that somebody posted, I forget who it was. On the Jets' starting corners, the two Jets' starting corners allowed a total of eight yards in this game. Sauce Gardner was out there. I think it was like he had 34 coverage snaps, was thrown at maybe seven times, gave up one catch and eight yards. It's insane. The Ravens had their fewest rushing yards of the Lamar Jackson era. So the defense was really special, and you still lost by 15. And by the way, credit Lamar Jackson, because there were two breakdowns. There were literally two defensive breakdowns in this game, and that's it. And both times he threw a touchdown on those plays. And that was all they needed. There were two defensive breakdowns, which every team's going to have one or two a game. And the best quarterbacks in the league are able to take advantage of every defensive breakdown. Sometimes, against some teams, against some quarterbacks, you can afford a defensive breakdown or two, and they don't find it. The Jets had two this entire game. That's it. And both times, Lamar Jackson took advantage. It tells you a lot about Lamar Jackson, what type of special quarterback he is, but also tells you a lot about this Jets defense and how good they are. The fact that they lost by 15 with all that is insane and stupid me because this is on everyone who thought, oh, Flacco's going to have a revenge game. That whole narrative was idiotic. It was one of my worst takes as a Jets fan. And everyone talks about it. Everyone was talking about it before. Even the Ravens fans are talking about Joe Flacco revenge game. You realize how long ago Joe Flacco was on the Ravens? It was 2018, the last time he played a snap for the Baltimore Ravens. It's four years ago in the playoffs. Get over it. Like, I remember where I was when I was watching that game. And I think back to where I was in life at that point to where I am now. And I'm just like, oh, my God. Try and remember where you were when the Ravens played that game and got blown out. By the Chargers and Phillip Rivers. Try and remember where you were because that's the last time Joe Placco played for the Baltimore Ravens. So to think this was some kind of revenge game and he was going to get back on them. I mentioned it with Russell Wilson before. Some time kind of makes it different, but this wasn't time removed. This was like they forgot about him. They've had an MVP since then. They've gone to a couple playoff games since then. They're in the fifth year already of Lamar Jackson since then. They don't care they really don't and Joe Flacco like should have like we should have realized that and with all that with the offense and the potential we see if they they make a creative game plan and it could be better than it was with or without Zach Wilson but definitely with with the defense and how creative and how good they were how good Quinnen Williams was in this game how good Jordan Reed was in this game how good everyone was in this game and yet with all that they lose and that's the problem that all we always see is potential yeah there's so much potential look they could do so much and yet at the end of the day we're talking about what they could have done and what they should have done and yet they're still losing that's why the Giants and the Jets are polar opposites because if you look around the league and there are other some other reactions to what happened around the league the Giants didn't play a great game Daniel Jones was not great Saquon Barkley was awesome but like you might have to trade him eventually because he's so good and I talked about that on Sunday But they made mistakes. And I think back to my bet, just the fact that they were able to get down the field and score that touchdown, it seemed like it was going to be impossible to do for them to score that touchdown. But you have Dable chewing out Daniel Jones on the sideline. Him asking his veterans, hey, when we score here, should we go for two? I think we should go for two. Like, that is the perfect example. They are polar opposite of the Jets. They did so many things wrong. They have zero hope, zero good players on this roster other than Saquon. And yet they win the game. And if you look at it, it's like so many different things could have happened. They could have missed the two point conversion and then they would have lost. They, the field goal could have been made by Tennessee. Should have been made after those penalties that the Giants allowed them to march right down the field and get into field goal position. They should have made the field goal to win the game, but they didn't. And yet, even with all that, with how terrible they played, you still would have felt better about the Giants because it seems like they have the right guy in place. He's good in front of the media. He holds his players accountable. He's fun after the game. His celebration. Dable's awesome. And again, it's another time where it feels like the Giants have the guy and the Jets don't. And despite the fact that the Giants roster is just bad and not good, they're the ones who are celebrating at the end of it. And the Jets aren't. And I don't care how much better the Jets roster is. You talk about, oh, the roster's so good. There's so much potential. They're still getting blown out by 15 points. And should have been more another thought that i had because we talked about joe burrow and this could come back to bite him his willingness to take hits is one of the things we all admired something we talked about a positive about him right everyone always talked about how joe burrow is willing to take hits and he stands there in the pocket he stands in he takes the hit and delivers strikes downfield there aren't quarterbacks like him anymore but this is also a guy we've seen get hurt and that could end up being a negative in the long run like Maybe try and have more plays where you're getting rid of the ball a little bit quicker. You have a great running back, maybe rely on him. You have a few really good receivers, especially one of the best receivers in the league in Chase. I think Joe Burrow, while it's admirable that he can stand in there and take the hits, I think he also has to learn to protect himself a little bit better for the longevity of his career. That was just another thing that I kind of been watching highlights and film from this past week was something I was like, wow, Joe Burrow's got to do a better job, especially when you're going up against a guy who's that good. In TJ Watt, who we learned is hurt, but he's not going to be hurt for that long. And by the way, that's the key in the NFL. You get pressure with four, you're going to win a lot of football games. And having a guy like TJ Watt, having a guy like Miles Garrett, we saw that this week. Those two teams won their games because they were able to get pressure with four. When you're able to get pressure with four, you still have a ton of DBs down the field. It's a really great advantage to have. So, I mean... TJ Watt being out, I think that puts a real damper on the season. But if it's only a couple weeks, only two to four weeks, as opposed to out for the entire season for the Pittsburgh Steelers, that could be a huge help. Because if he was out for the season, their season was going to be over. I also kind of took a dump on Trey Lance after this game. And I think a lot of people did. But let's not overreact. Trey Lance had a terrible game in the worst conditions we've ever seen a football game. Lots of cool pictures came out of that game. If you're into photography, you're into football, you should check out the pictures from that game, from the win, the Chicago win over the 49ers. But let's not overreact to Trey Lance. One game, his second NFL start, I think maybe his second or third NFL start in terrible conditions. Like I said, let's not overreact. By the way, there's no better quarterback down a few scores than Matt Ryan. I remember that because I was thinking about how they came back. They were getting blown out by the Texans and they came back and actually tied that game. And the only reason they tied that game and it wasn't a blow. It was because the Texans are so bad they couldn't figure out a way to win it. But the second they tied the game, they couldn't take the lead or win because Matt Ryan's only good when he's down two touchdowns or more. Then all of a sudden he becomes the best quarterback in the league. Forgot that. That's that's his thing. Another little note, a little nugget from uh, Sunday. And I think Las Vegas has to figure this out. I think it was Devontae Adams was targeted 18 times and the rest of the receivers were targeted like 16 times combined. That's not good. You have to spread the ball. Don't overlook over pass it to one guy that can never be good for your offense. But it was funny. Devonta Adams had 141 receiving yards and the Packers receivers combined had a total of 120. Rodgers can't be happy seeing that. But like I said, I still have faith. Still have faith in Aaron Rodgers. I trust. I think they still will be good. Um, And something interesting that I saw also. You think Tua Tungavailoa could be what Russell Wilson was in the early Seattle days? You think Tua can be that in Miami? Because I actually think he can. With the two really good wide receivers they have there with Waddle and obviously Tyreek Hill. the decent running back, solid tight ends, and a really good defense. I think he could do just enough to win you a bunch of games. So do I still think Tua is awesome? No. Do I think he could be as good as Russell Wilson was? If Russell Wilson, it turns out, really wasn't that great ever? but definitely early Seattle days where he's carried by Marshawn Lynch, just had to make a few throws a game, just had to scramble a little bit in the pocket by time. Maybe he could be that good. There's a case to be made for Tua. Another thing we talk about all the time, and I'm kind of going to gloss over this, but something we talk about all the time is having to know right away about young quarterbacks. It's a big topic, hot topic in the NFL where by year two or three, you really have to know. And it's kind of upsetting when you look at a guy, like I talked about, when you looked at, Trey Lance. You looked at a guy like Justin Fields. You even look at a guy like Trevor Lawrence. But Zach Wilson being hurt, like, he's losing valuable time. If he doesn't show it this year, they're going to give up on him when some guys can develop later. Like, Daniel Jones had a terrible game. And I think people are already writing off Daniel Jones because he's in year four. You're not going to give him a chance after this year. But what if Dable is the guy who can turn him around? What if he does what he did for Josh Allen? Like, you think they're going to give him another chance next year? Probably not. Unless they really win and make it to the playoffs. I don't know. So, so many people have already written him off. But because of the big money, it's actually a problem that the NFL has caused itself in a league where you're always trying to find the quarterback and the quarterback's the most important position. You're shooting yourself in the foot by not allowing yourself time to look at these guys and then having to draft a guy over again and then making the same mistake the next time. Maybe ultimately, you'll find your quarterback sooner by giving the guy you currently have more time, as backwards as that sounds. And and I think it's true. All right, there's going to be something that I do every week. Uh, I'm going to try and do it every week, and I'm going to do it on this podcast. It's a little bit kind of squeezed in on this podcast because there's so much going on. And I told you I was going to go along on this podcast. We still have to preview the Thursday night game, and I will get to that. But we're going to be doing a power rankings every week. Maybe we'll do them on the Thursday night pods. I'm not sure. We'll see how uh, the rest of these Wednesday pods go. So maybe we'll be doing them on the Friday podcasts. Uh, But we'll see right now. I think I'm going to try and squeeze it in today as we do the power rankings of each NFL team. I'm not going to go one through 32, but instead I'm going to do tiers. And you're going to hear all about that in a second. So the tiers I decided to split it up in are as follows. The championship caliber teams, the contenders who are really contending for a championship, potentially. The pretenders, who some of them may even make the playoffs, but they're not really that good. The mediocre teams, which are just those teams in the middle that aren't really bad, but they're not really good. And then the hot garbage. And I bet you can guess who I put in the hot garbage pile. But we start with the championship-caliber teams. And that is Buffalo, Green Bay, Tampa, and Kansas City. Kansas City and Buffalo, for obvious reasons... Uh, and we saw what they were able to do. Tampa Bay's defense looked off, awesome. And so if they're that good, that's awesome. And like I said, Dallas's defense still looks pretty good. And yet Tom Brady, they score enough. They do just enough to think they usually get hot as the season goes on. That's how Tom Brady teams work. And I'm not ready to give up on Green Bay. I still think their defense is good. I still think Aaron Rodgers is the best quarterback in the league currently, maybe outside of Patrick Mahomes, but maybe he's 1-1A. And so I still think those teams are really good. And so I have four teams in the championship caliber uh, tier, and those are the top four teams. In the contenders, I have the LA Rams. Yes, I know. It wasn't a great showing from them. I still have them as contenders. Like I said, one week. The LA Chargers. Yes, they had a really big win. Yes, I've talked about how they're not a great team. They're not as good as I. I don't think they're as good as everyone, but they have a chance to prove me wrong tonight, Thursday night football, or tomorrow night, I should say, Thursday night football. Um, they have a chance to prove me wrong we'll see what happens there the baltimore ravens i think they're really good i told you lamar jackson that's like the next level of becoming a great quarterback is when every time the defense makes a mistake you could take advantage we even see him run around in that game i think there's a lot of unlock potential that's yet to be unlocked from the baltimore ravens and the cincinnati Bengals. tough loss but like i said the fact that they only lost by three in overtime and it took a couple missed kicks to do it after joe burrow turned the ball over five times that impresses me more than anything In the pretenders, I have Minnesota. Yes, they beat Green Bay, but they have to show me more if I'm going to think of them as a championship contender. Do I think they're a playoff contender? Sure. But they're pretenders as far as championships. Philadelphia on the same boat. And I have Cleveland. And Cleveland is really interesting to me because if you think about the Cleveland Browns, there's a good chance they can make the playoffs. That team, that roster is really good. And we'll get into it a little bit later as I'm going to do another segment in a minute, but. Don't overlook the Cleveland Browns. I also have in the Pretenders, the New York Giants. Want to know? And we'll get into that a little bit later as well. The San Francisco 49ers. I know it's a tough loss, but like I said, Jimmy G is just waiting in the balance somewhere. If, if if Trey Lance is bad, they'll just go to G- Jimmy G. That's the obvious answer. And Jimmy G has never been bad. He's always won games. Whether you like him or not, he's won games with the 49ers. I have the Denver Broncos. Like I said, too early to tell. Tough loss in week one for Russell Wilson back. In Seattle but we'll see what happens with that I have the Las Vegas Raiders who yes I didn't love their performance yes Derek Hart was awful he's definitely kind of upset me they're not contenders as of now also week one New Orleans with Jameis Winston like I said they could be a little bit frisky and the Miami Dolphins who I talked about they could also be a pretty good team this year in the mediocre teams I have Pittsburgh that win didn't impress me at all no TJ Watt for a few weeks that's going to be tough to overcome Indianapolis who I really don't like Houston that same division, don't love Jacksonville and Washington. By the way, it's impressive that Houston, Jacksonville, Washington, I have Chicago and Detroit also in this category. It's impressive they're not in the hot garbage. I thought Chicago and Seattle were two of the worst rosters in football, and yet they're still in this category. So like I said, the mediocre category is Pittsburgh, Indianapolis, Houston, Jacksonville, Washington, Chicago, Detroit, Seattle, who I thought was hot garbage, like I said, Atlanta, who didn't show me anything. And the New England Patriots. Now, the New England Patriots, based on the way they played, they should be in the hot garbage category. But then again, they have Bill Belichick. I can never rule him out. So I put them in mediocre. Hot garbage. The worst team in the NFL is the New York Jets. They were, if you watched all the games, they were probably the worst team. Tennessee was one of the worst teams. Dallas was awful to watch. I have Carolina in here. I think it was all smoke and mirrors. The comeback at the end, not very good. Not impressed at all. And Arizona. Arizona, whether you like Cliff Kingsbury, I think he's going to be the first coach to get fired. Whether you like Kyler Murray, I don't. I think that team looked awful. Kyler looked scared. Kyler was running around. And I know Kansas City's really good. And Arizona can make me eat my words because they're expected to be pretty good. And I don't know how good that NFC West division is. I don't know if it's as good as it was last year. But I think Arizona is one of the worst teams in football. Now, a lot of people are talking about how the AFC is much better than the NFC. And I don't think if you look at the top nine teams that I ranked or the top eight teams that I ranked, which are the championship caliber teams and the contenders who are championship contender teams of those eight teams, Buffalo, Green Bay, Tampa Bay, Kansas City, the LA Rams, the LA Chargers, Baltimore, and Cincinnati. Five of the teams are AFC teams. So that would work into the narrative that the AFC is much better than the NFC. But still, that's pretty close. Five and three. That's not terrible. It seems like there's a lot of NFC teams that are really good, too. I think what's more concerning, though, is there are more questions about those great NFC teams. If you look at Green Bay and the performance that they had, there's a big question mark next to them. you look at Tampa Bay, you have Tom Brady's offseason still kind of hanging over them. And at the same time, he's 45 at any time. Anything could happen. And the LA Rams. Talked about Matthew Stafford, his injury. They looked really bad. So those three teams, while they're in, the championship contenders while they're in the championship caliber teams on my book, there's still a lot of question marks surrounding them. All right. One last thing before we preview the Thursday night game and who knew I was going to talk this much on a Wednesday. Like I said, doing the podcast on Sunday night kind of opens your mind to think about things a little bit differently and to talk about more things as the week goes on. I kind of really love it. And so these Wednesday pods, I feel like every week, are going to be where I make some of the best points. I think this is like the ultimate football podcast on, are going to be on Wednesdays. I love it. I'm super into it. So before I preview the Thursday night game, there's one more thing. I don't know if I'm going to update this weekly, but I talked a little bit at the end of the last episode. And if you didn't listen, this is a cool part of the episode where I talked about how every year there are a few playoff teams who come out of nowhere who shock you. And I'm going to try and figure out who those teams are, who those teams, that, that team that just surprises you, And makes a run. Last year, a lot of people thought it was Arizona early in the year. And then they fell apart. Who's the team that could really surprise you and be a playoff team this year? And so right now, if we're looking at two teams, I kind of mentioned them in the last segment, that maybe weren't expected to do much this year. And could end up being playoff caliber and maybe even more teams this year. Number one is the New York Giants. Yes, I said it. They didn't look great. Daniel Jones is not a great quarterback. And Saquon Barkley really looked like himself for the first time in forever. They made a lot of mistakes. There were penalties. But like I said, I love Brian Dable. And if you look at their next few people that they face, you look at their schedule, they face Carolina at home, Dallas at home, and the Bears at home. They're already favored against Carolina at home, who I just told you, Carolina is one of the worst teams in football, in my opinion. They have a chance, a real chance of being 4-0 at the end of those four games. Dallas is going to be without Dak Prescott still. You think they can't beat Cooper Rush at home? You think they can't beat the Bears at home? The Bears, like I told you, is one of the worst wa- rosters. Yeah, they had a nice win in a weird game in Chicago in the crazy weather. But I think they could definitely win those three games. And if the Giants are 4-0 and and still get to play Dallas one more time and Washington twice, you can tell me this team doesn't have a chance of going 9-8, and going 10-7 and and making the playoffs? I think they really do. And that's something scary to think about. This team, if they make the playoffs, we've heard about this before. Eli Manning, what was it? Was it his fourth or fifth year where he made the playoffs after not looking good earlier in his career? And then all of a sudden, he made the playoffs with, what, a 9-7 and team and won the Super Bowl? Wouldn't be the craziest thing for the Giants to be that team. We'll see how it progresses. And the other team, like I mentioned, is the Cleveland Browns. The Cleveland Browns haven't won a season opener since 2006, and now they have a very realistic chance of being 2-0. As it stands, they are six and a half point favorites at home against the New York Jets. The New York Jets have a statue for a quarterback, and the Browns have Jadavian Clowney and Miles Garrett. And while I don't think their quarterback situation is great till Deshaun gets back, they have two really good running backs with Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt And when Deshaun Watson comes back, if they could find a way to be six and five, five and six when Deshaun Watson comes back, I don't know what kind of version we're getting of Deshaun Watson. That's true. He hasn't played in nearly two years. At that point, it'll be almost two years. So we don't know what it'll be like. But if they can kind of hover around 500, and it looks like they're going to be starting off 2-0, if they can kind of hover around 500 to start the season, that's going to be really impressive. By the way, I didn't talk about it on this episode. I'm going to go over my picks. I went 8-8 eight and eight on the season or on the week. Not great. We'll go through it uh, maybe after the Thursday night game. But speaking of the Thursday night game, as we're approaching an hour of this episode, I don't want to go much longer than this. So let me talk about the Thursday night game. And it starts with... And the easy answer is to look at it as, well, this game is going to be another game that Kansas City shows who's boss, but the Chargers defense is good and their offense is really good both way better than Arizona. So to say that the Chargers, whose defense was more impressive to me than their offense was against the Las Vegas Raiders, to say that they're just going to roll over and again, Seattle's going to... And again, Kansas City and Patrick Mahomes are going to blow them out. I don't think that's going to happen. Another thing you look at is Thursday Night Football, always very few points scored. And I don't know if you saw this today, but for a brief moment, Patrick Mahomes was listed as questionable during practice at some point today and then it was lifted so I don't know when that happened I have him on my fantasy team I got an update he's listed as questionable and then a few hours later it said he's actually upgraded from questionable to healthy so I'm not sure what Patrick Mahomes is dealing with you also know that the Chargers aren't going to have Keenan Allen Kansas City is minus three and a half in this game if I'm going to pick this game I'm going to take Kansas City minus three and a half I think they could win by a touchdown definitely more than a field goal and I think the over will hit the over, under, in points total in this game is 54.5. And yes, for a Thursday night game, that would be a lot of points. Last week, a lot of people probably thought the over was going to hit also. But I could see this game being like a 28-27 to 27 game, a 34-28 to 28 game. I know it's not generally what we see on Thursday night football, but I think you can't really stop either of these offenses. They're that good. I think we're going to see a lot of points from the Chiefs. They could have scored even more if the game wasn't so out of hand. Patrick Mahomes easily could have thrown for six or seven touchdowns in that game. I still think we see a lot of offense from Mahomes and the Chiefs. I think we see a lot of offense from Justin Herbert and the Chargers. I'm going to take take the Chiefs minus three and a half. And the over, and that is my pick. I'm gonna parlay those because if you just take the Chiefs minus three and a half, I think it's like minus 106, something like that. But if you take them parlayed, then all of a sudden I think it's like plus 254, or something like that. So I'm going to take that. That gives me good odds. And the Chiefs and the over, let's hope they both hit. That's going to be my bet, and I think that's what's going to happen. I think, you know, a lot of people are gonna say, well, Arizona's not that good. I think Kansas City still feels that they need to prove even more on a short week that this offense is legit and I think they're going to put up a ton of points that said I think like I said Justin Herbert's still pretty good he's still gonna put up points anyway that's all for the podcast long one tonight or today on Wednesday I hope you enjoyed it and if you did please like it share it with other people it really helps me out if you do share it with other people and if you're listening right now I love doing this because helps my confidence just shoot me a text say hey I'm listening enjoying the podcast really appreciate it and until next time see you
1: the best nights of my life, you got the light that always shines. I miss the way that you move and the way I get high. When you take me to your eyes, like I'm standing in the sky. I see your subway causing your graffiti i breathe your air when I land in another city I'll be that one that's got you printed on my bones Yeah, you're all I know Everywhere I go, oh, oh I say is it oh, oh, oh. Drive down riverside See the birds flying on the highline With the sidewalks burning We pray for rain in July I want the Yankees 99 yeah. And the Knicks on a sold-out night When the curtains close And the Broadway streets are alive hey. I need your heartbeat close Don't you ever leave me And I breathe your air When I land in another city it got you printed on my book. To hit them courts y'all so in Prospect. Take them long walks on my times spent. Just a kid with that Empire State of mindset. Kick flipping off a blind deck, dipping from the New, New York City's finest. Yeah, said I've been up on my New York shit, walking down the block with my New York bitch. I could never leave my city, ain't nothing like it. Even if I do though, I could never hide it. Top down on the West Side when I'm driving, East Side be the only side of the ride New York.